0: This year so far. This is the last sermon in the Jonah sermon series. And yes, we are in Matthew. I I actually know what I'm doing. That was not a mistake. So we're going to read Matthew 12, 38 through 42, and then we're going to talk about the book of Jonah. Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. All this is from God, who gave us through Christ reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them and giving us the message of this reconciliation. As you have made us a new creation and the old has gone and the new has come. And as you have entrusted to us this message of new life in the gospel, use this text to make us faithful in the living and the proclaiming of this gospel among a lost and dying world. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So the book of Jonah, it's an excellent story. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's a convicting story. I hope you've enjoyed that. I think it's also encouraging. I think it can be humbling, and we've enjoyed Jonah together now for five weeks, and we've also enjoyed it as part of the Book of the Twelve. It's its own coherent story all by itself, but it's also part of a bigger story, the Minor Prophets. But as we've enjoyed Jonah, just its own self and its story, and as part of the story of the Minor Prophets, the story of redeeming love, the whole time we've been hearing the message and theology of Jonah, we've been hearing this other echo going in the background. Right? It's like like there's another story going at the same time. Like we're listening to Jonah, and we're listening to something else too. And so we've started calling Jonah the gospel according to Jonah. And now this morning as we conclude the series, we're going to see that that actually wasn't so far off when we were doing that because Jesus Christ just said, if you're reading Jonah correctly, you're reading a book about me. And so we might want to ask the question, well, how so, Jesus? So let's go back and look at Jonah and read it as Jesus is reading it. In Jonah chapter 1, which we called the great storm, right? Every chapter we had the word great in the title of the sermon because great repeats 14 times in Jonah, if you remember that, right? The whole book is great, 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 great. It's a great book, 14 times the word great. The great storm in Jonah 1, we read about God's gracious discipline and God's unmerited salvation. Jonah says in that chapter, I am a Hebrew. And that's a statement that gives more than his family tree. It gives the reason he exists. This is his vocation, is to be a Hebrew. Just like saying, I am a Christian. It's the same kind of statement. I belong to the Lord God, the one true living God, Yahweh. I exist to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's what I'm here for. Whatever I do for a living during the week, I exist for glorifying God and enjoying him. I exist for worship and for witness. And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. That's what I'm for. And then his life looks absolutely nothing like that, right? We're about to be in the book of James starting next week, where James says, words and deeds have to go together. And Jonah's words and deeds do not go together. So when God says, get up and go to Nineveh, he's sending Jonah to people he hates, who will persecute him when he talks to them, and will likely just, right, they'll disappear him. If a Jew shows up in the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He's probably gonna end up dead. So when God says get up and go, Jonah runs the other direction. You said Nineveh, I'm going to Tarshish, I'm out of here. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, but God because of the great love with which he loves Jonah sends a great storm instead as discipline to stop the prophet's flight. And as he does so then we read about a sacrifice in unmerited salvation god provides unmerited salvation for the sailors who are in the boat with jonah they can't save themselves these are people from every tribe tongue nation and language and as god's prophet or you could say god's child or you could say god's son goes overboard god's son takes god's wrath down on himself and he leaves the ship and goes overboard down to death in the waves. And as God's son goes overboard and dies and takes God's wrath and sin on him, the sailors are saved. Unmerited substitutionary atonement, right? There's a trade that goes on. And then a little temple just sort of appears in the middle of the Mediterranean and worship starts because God is with them where they're worshiping him. Jonah 1 sounds a lot like the work of God to the gospel of Grace. And Jesus is saying, that's my story. Chapter two, the great fish. Remember the word play, dog dole? The word great also has the same letters and sounds as fish. So, dog dole, great fish. It's the heart of the theology of the book. Remember, it's a poem and a narrative. And in the middle of the poem and the chiasm is the very center of the heart of the message of Jonah. And Jonah's about what? As Jonah goes down and dies, we find out Jonah's not about death. It's about resurrection. That's the heart of the story of Jonah, life from death. Death is not the end for one who is God's child. Death is not the end for one who is God's son. Life is. And Jonah goes down to the grave in a three-day journey of death back to life. And now Jonah is ready to live up to, I am a Hebrew. So what does God say to Jonah the second time? Now that he's gone from death to life, he says exactly the same thing he said the first time, right? Right? get up and go. Get up and go. And this time Jonah does. That sounds a lot like the transforming work of the gospel of grace when Jesus comes and saves someone and changes them from who they were to be like him. Jonah 3, as we keep reading Jonah with Jesus, Jonah 3 is the great city And we watch God overturn an entire evil city full of violence and enemies with the power of his word. Jonah speaks, you remember how many words? How many words is his message in Hebrew? Five. Five words, three-day journey. The whole city is overturned. Everybody repents. Everybody turns from their evil way. Everybody comes and cries out, from mercy. They come in sackcloth. They come fasting. They come empty. They come with nothing. And the end of the three-day journey of God's Son from death back to life, even God's enemies are saved when they repent and cry out in faith. What does that sound like? Jonah 3 sounds like the unexpected, glorious grace of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, you're reading about me. Now look at chapter 4, last week's text, which we called the Great Question. Remember, there were two long speeches by Jonah, diatribes, as he's railing against God and two short questions by God to respond to him. Are you sure you're doing what is right to? And then God gets the last word and the final question. Jonah is railing because he doesn't like God's gracious character. He doesn't like God's gracious conduct when God is saving people Jonah doesn't like and doesn't approve of. He likes grace when it's for him. But not when it's for other people, especially those people, those Assyrians. And so the book ends with a question for the reader, who really owns salvation? When Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord at chapter 2, does he actually believe it? Is it up to the people of God to get to decide who is saved and who's not? Who hears the gospel and who doesn't? Or is God's job the the job of salvation? And is our call, I am a Hebrew, I am a Christian, our job is to just get up and go and proclaim the message we've been given and then let God do with it as he pleases. Jonah 4 ends by asking its reader, which one will it be? Are you going to go off in active resistance running away? Are you going to sit in passive disobedience frowning that God is saving people you don't like? Or are you going to heed the call to get up and go to those people that they might hear the gospel too? There's no neutrality here. There's no it's either one or the other. It's either obey or disobey. That's it. There's no third choice. That sounds like the choice of the gospel. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's what it means to be my disciple. Jesus is saying, this book is about me. You're reading, you're reading about me. And so now we're reading Jonah in the the context of its larger story, right? The Minor Prophets. It's just one of a 12-part book. The Minor Prophets all have their own story in theology that goes from Hosea all the way to Malachi, if you read them in order and listen to what they're saying. Jonah's right in the middle of that, in its story. We covered Hosea 1 through 3 in our introductory sermon. That plays on our text in Matthew as well. People have turned away from God to their own false gods in Hosea. They've been pursuing satisfaction and security and significance, the things that we really at a soul level want and desire and need from anywhere other than God. Wealth, wisdom, work, power, pleasure, position, right? Those are the Ecclesiastes things we covered a couple of years ago. All of those are false gods. They're hevel. They can't save. And our pursuit of them, Hosea says, our love for those things is tantamount to adultery, It's like we're having an affair. God is the husband. We are his bride. That's a metaphor used all over scripture. And when we turn from our husband, the Lord, to some other thing, it's like having an affair. And I'm done with you. You don't satisfy me anymore. I'm going to start sleeping around with other people. That's what I'm doing. That's what's going to satisfy me. That's what sin is. That's what adultery, that's what idolatry is. Turning to other gods, it's like adultery. And that so disgusts our Heavenly Father that He says in Hosea, I am not your God. Which is an absolutely terrifying statement if that's where the book ends. Sinners like us cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Just one sin, one time, and you're done. God is ready to cut us off and cast us out, and we deserve it. We deserve death. We deserve eternity in hell, forever separated from God and anything good. That's the end of Hosea 1. Hosea 2 and 3 keep going, and God says, despite your adultery, despite what you deserve, I'm going to pay the price to bring you back. I'm going to pay the penalty of your sin, death, myself. I'm going to purchase you. I'm going to come grab you. I'm going to woo you. It even says, and I'm going to wrap my arms around you as the mountains wrap around Jerusalem, as Psalm says, and I'm going to draw you to myself, and I'm going to say to you, you are are my people. You're mine, right? Baptism is a sign that you belong and you will always belong, and I will never let you go. And God's people respond when God does this amazing work of salvation that we don't deserve. We respond, and you are our God, and we want nothing else, just you. The false gods are gone. I'm here for worship, I'm here for witness. That's the story of the twelve. That's the story of Jonah. And Jesus is saying, that's my story. You're reading about me and what I've come to do. So that when Jesus' opponents in Matthew confront him, he's confronting the Pharisees. He says, here's all you need to know to understand who I am. Go read Jonah. That was my story. And if you get that book, you'll get what I'm here to do. Because it's the same thing. See, the main point of our text this morning in Matthew, I think, is you cannot be neutral about Jesus. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. You will either live for him alone, in Christ alone. We sang that this morning. You either live for him alone, or you will die for yourself alone. And that's your only two choices. You can either live life with Christ and have resurrection in him, or you can stand apart from him in your own sin, and you will die forever in hell. That's it. You can't be neutral about Jesus. There's no third choice. And the rest of our sermon this morning then is going to tease this out, and there will be three parts if you look at the bulletin outline. Our sermon text is just one part of a bigger episode going on in Matthew, Actually, about five parts to Matthew 12. We're going to take a running start at all of them. They all start with S, right? There's a discussion of Sabbath and servant and spirit and sign, that's our text, and siblings. So we're, we're not going to preach all of those, but we need the context for our passage so we see what Jesus is responding to. Sabbath, servant, spirit, sign, siblings. Then we're going to look at this text itself with the sign of Jonah, and then we're going to end the sermon with what is the sign of a disciple. Here we go. Reading Jonah with Jesus is our last sermon in the sermon series on Jonah. If you got our Friday, get ready for the Lord's Day email and you read it, you've just read Matthew 12. So we're going to review it. Here are the S's that lead up to our passage. We meet the Pharisees and the scribes. They're people who want the world to run their way, the way they say it should. They would fit in really well with America. They're a little pre-Rousseauian, but they would work well with Rousseau. Let's throw off the chains, throw off the shackles. I'm going to make my own system. I'm going to make my own little false worship. I'm going to create, here's how God's world works. That's what they They want to live out their own story. So they've made their own story into a religious one. That's their own story. We're going to create a little system of 12 easy steps to work your way to heaven. That's kind of the Pharisees, right? And so you have to follow our twelve little 12-step program to work your way. Although you're going to earn God's favor, you're going to do good works, you're going to do all of these things we tell you, and when you're done jumping through our hoops, then you'll be right with God and you can go to heaven. That's the Pharisees. There are are religions out there that do that these days. Pretty much any religion other than Christianity has some little 12-step program to get you to heaven. The Pharisees have one too. That's an idol. That's a false god. They're not comfortable with Jesus, because that's not how Jesus works. Everywhere Jesus goes, grace comes. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. It's a gift from God. They don't like that very much, right? That circumvents their little power system they've constructed in their little religious works-based system. Every place Jesus goes, grace reverses the world. It's like Jonah is a story of reversal. So everywhere Jesus goes, there's reversal. He reverses the brokenness and the effects of the curse. Wherever he ends up, he's healing the sick. That's an effect of the curse. Wherever he goes, the blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. Strength is coming to the, cur- to the crippled. He's undoing the curse's physical effects in the world. Everywhere he goes, it's as though the old is gone and the new has come. You see how that's working? New creation is where Jesus Christ goes. But he's also calling people not just to physical healing, but to repentance, Jews and Gentiles, to repent and believe and be reconciled with God, undoing this, the curse's spiritual effects. And then he hits the curse head on right? Because what's, what's the main curse of sin? The wages of sin is death. And when Jesus is around, the dead come back from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. The Pharisees do not like this. Jesus is helping people they don't approve of, that they don't like, and he's totally screwing up their little 12-step works-based work-your-way-to-heaven system by offering that God's grace and salvation is a free gift only received by faith. It undermines their little power system and their false religion. So in Matthew 12, Jesus is having a series of confrontations with these guys. It starts off with Sabbath practice. It's the beginning of the chapter. Is it okay to provide for people's legitimate needs on the Sabbath? Right? Is it okay to have acts of mercy like a necessity, like getting them food? Is it okay to heal people on the Sabbath? Their little 12-step program to work your way to heaven says no. And Jesus says, grace. The Sabbath was made for you, not you for the Sabbath. It's part of Sabbath work to do works of mercy. And so they don't like that very much as they confront him about the Sabbath. So then he heals a demon-possessed man. This man can't appeal for help. He's blind. He can't find Jesus. He's mute. He can't ask for help. He has to be brought to Jesus. He can't come on his own. He is the prisoner of Satan. He is hopeless and helpless, and Christ casts out the demon and frees the man and heals him and shows clearly who he is. If you'll notice Matthew 12 quotes at this point, Isaiah 42. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's calm. He's bringing salvation even to the coastlands. We studied Isaiah 42, what was it, three years ago together? Something like that. He's bringing salvation to the coastlands. The suffering servant is coming to trade himself for the sin of the people and save them. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Sabbath, servant. So this becomes a real spiritual problem for the Pharisees. So they just accuse him, right? And when you can't win an argument, then you just start calling people. You've done this, right? Flame Wars Online. They don't call him a Nazi, right, because that was, would be anachronistic. So instead, they call him, well, you're possessed by Satan. You must be working for him. You're demon-possessed. Right? They confuse the work of the Holy Spirit with the work of a demonic spirit and the logical and theological fallacies inherent in that whole problem, right, because it's just ridiculous, that earns them a scathing rebuke and a lesson in logic and a lesson in theology from Jesus because his work is by the Spirit of God. That's the passage that comes right before our words. Then we get to the, if you actually understood the book of Jonah, you'd know who I am. And then we get to the end where he's talking about his siblings. We're going to come back to that later. Who are Jesus' actual brothers and sisters? That's the end after our passage. So he's just warned the Pharisees now. Your words are going to be used to judge you. Be careful what comes out your mouth. You've just accused me. Of being possessed by a demon by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned Jesus says and then we get to our passage and here Jonah and the Ninevites they get to make a little cameo appearance one last time in scripture they come on stage because the scribes and the Pharisees ask Jesus for something if you look at verse 38 of our passage in Matthew 12 they say teacher which I think sounds sarcastic when I read it. Teacher, we wish to see from you a sign. That's what they're asking. They're calling it a sign. What are they asking for, actually, do you think? I think they're asking him to do a miracle, something that proves who he is, right? I don't think they really want to see somebody else saved or healed or helped, because that seems to irritate them every time he does it. I think what they want, they're asking for him to do is prove yourself. Come on, prove yourself, show us a sign that proves you're the Messiah. Why do you think that's a problem, to ask Jesus for a sign? You have ever wondered that? I have, as I've read this passage and studied it. It's like, why, so why is this bad? It pretty obviously is not okay because of the way Jesus responds to them. He, his response is, you are an evil and adulterous generation those are sharp words, right? And they have a bunch of content, context, cargo in them, including Hosea. Did you see the word adulterous? He's drawing on Hosea. You're idolaters, you guys are. You've made a false worship system. You've constructed a false God. The one that you pretend to worship, that's not a real living God. That's your own imaginary construction. Your little 12-step program to heaven gets you absolutely nowhere but hell. Because that's not the one true living God. You're idolaters, you're adulterous. And Jesus says, when you're asking me to prove myself, it shows that you have already turned away from God. You've already made up your own little God and your own fake religious system based on works instead of grace. You're not my disciples at all. You're adulterers because you're idolaters. Because you see, with Jesus, you can't be neutral. You can't be neutral. He's not just some nice guy who showed up with some nice teachings that we should listen to occasionally. He's either the Lord of the universe or he's not. Those are your only two choices. He's not just a nice guy. So they're asking for a sign, appears to show that they lack faith. They lack faith. That's the one thing that's needed to receive the free gift of grace that God offers in Christ. They will not believe the words of Jesus when he is clearly showing them and telling them who he is. They won't even believe the words of the Old Testament, all of which clearly shows who he is. Isaiah 42, this is Christ. And Jesus is saying, my life, my deeds, my words, and the Old Testament's testimony have already shown you who I am. You have all the evidence you need. Another sign will not help you. You know, I used to have a professor in seminary, he would ask a particular question. When he was talking to somebody who was asking questions about Jesus, who was not yet a Christian, and that person would pose objections of this and that, and it's like asking for a sign, right? You have to prove it. I have this problem, I have that problem. He had a question he would always ask people that I have always found helpful, and it is this. If I answer your question to your satisfaction, will you then become a Christian? If that's your question and I can answer it to your satisfaction he was pretty sure he always could then will you become a Christian and if the answer is eh, maybe or no then his follow-up would be well then that's not the problem is it what is the real problem between you and Jesus and can we talk about that because this is just a distraction let's talk about the real reason you won't become a Christian now I thought that was really a helpful, insightful way to do things. That question works here. It's essentially what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this isn't actually the problem, is it? That you haven't seen enough signs yet, that you haven't seen enough evidence yet, that you haven't heard enough testimony yet. What's the real problem, guys? It's not the lack of a sign. It's the complete absence of faith. Remember how Jonah ends. Jonah ends. Last week in Jonah 4, he goes on this preaching mission to the Gentiles. He goes to the Ninevites who come up here, God's enemies, and they all turn to believe and they're saved by faith. It's an unbelievable reversal. It's a demonstration of the grace of God even going to people who are far away. All of Nineveh is saved, but Jonah's still a question mark, isn't he? At the end of the book, you don't really actually know what happens to that guy and the question is never answered in Scripture. He's angry about God's graciousness toward the sinners, kind of like the Pharisees. He's angry God abounds in mercy and grace and chesed. He's angry when mercy and grace come on people he doesn't like and approve of. He doesn't want the grace of God, just like the Pharisees don't either. They want everybody to play by their little rule book. And anybody who doesn't play by their rules gets condemned. Like Jonah They reject God's gracious offer of salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. It's like the book of Jonah. And the text is asking you, how about you? How about you? If you're not yet in Christ, what's the question you have that's keeping you from believing in Jesus? Can we help you answer it? We would love to. Let's not get distracted with secondary issues. You can't be neutral about Jesus. And your answer to who he is determines where you spend eternity. Let's, let's, let us, let's talk about the what is it that's keeping you from believing in Jesus this morning. Jesus points his Pharisee, friends, to the book of Jonah. He's responding to their accusation that he actually works for the devil. Willful misunderstanding by them faithless demand for more evidence and he says you already have everything you need guys go read your bibles which for them because they pretend to be the authoritative bible readers of the community that's intended to be a little snarky why don't you go read your bibles you bible reading people If you understood the story of Jonah, you would understand me because Jonah points to me, the gospel according to Jonah. Remember, Jonah trades his life for the sailors. Jonah is a substitute. He satisfies God's wrath. That's what Jesus does for you when you come in faith. Jonah goes down to the roots of the mountains, barred in forever, dead in three days, just as Christ went to the grave for you. He endured the darkness of Calvary. And at the end said, it is finished for you. Jonah comes back after three days and three nights in the fish and resurrection life because God raises him from the dead as God raised Christ from the dead, triumphing over death for you. And this message then goes out, both a message of warning and a message of grace. The gospel message goes to the nations because just like Jonah, Jesus' story doesn't end in the tomb either. And there's a resurrection life that will extend to everyone who comes and repents, who hears the message and comes empty and comes impoverished and comes in faith and pleads for mercy. Jonah and Matthew both depict the gospel. The book of Jonah is there so you can recognize Jesus, the one who is coming to save adulterers. Jesus has come to save sinners. It's this particular pleasure to run towards sinners who are hopeless and helpless and can't save themselves. It's what he loves doing by paying the price of our redemption so that God says to us, you are mine. My son has bought you. I've offered you grace. You've received it in faith. You belong to me now. You're forgiven. Everything. You're forgiven. Everything. Right? I say that every week to you in confession. All of your sins are forgiven in Christ. But only in Christ. But Jesus actually isn't done speaking yet, right? This is as far as we've gotten so far in Matthew, but Jesus is still talking. So he keeps talking to these guys, after pointing out, Jonah has a story about me. Then he gives two examples of the right kind of response to a story about the Messiah, the gospel. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater is here. And the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And something greater than Solomon is here. These are people who have the message come to them and respond in faith. And these are people who hear the message and go find out about it. The Pharisees have both opportunities, and they're taking neither. We want to focus on the men of Nineveh, because that's who we've met recently. He's telling them the right response to the person in the words, the proclamation about salvation coming by grace, is what Nineveh did. Repentance. Repentance. The men of Nineveh and the women of Nineveh and actually every animal of Nineveh Nineveh participated in the repentance. They came empty, fasting. We have nothing. We cannot save ourselves. They came in sackcloth, right? We, We have no possessions. There's nothing we have or do that can earn or buy our way out of this. We're empty. We're poor. Have mercy. We deserve judgment. Would you turn and save us? God loves saving people just like that. That's who Jesus runs toward. The one who comes and says, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I deserve hell. I believe, Jesus, that you have paid the penalty of my sin in your death and resurrection. Would you save me? That's the only response to Jesus that saves. And you can't be neutral. To not do that is to reject him and to reject life, both now and forever. And that's why the response of the Ninevites condemns the Pharisees. They want to come to God on their own terms. They have a little 12-step program. I'll just be a nice enough, good enough person. I'll just do enough good works that they'll outbalance the bad things I've done. I'll just jump through the little religious hoops and do the ceremonies, right? And do pray the rosary, if you don't mind me getting a little pushy, right? Our Catholic friends have the same kind of works-based real, righteousness that the Pharisees are condemned for. The Orthodox Church has the same kind of works-based righteousness that this text condemns. I'll just do enough stuff that I'll earn God's favor. That's not what the Ninevites did. Empty, poor. Faith, asking for mercy. Like that's not the only person, people whom God saves in the book. He also saves Jonah. right? Jonah, although he ends the book with a question mark, he goes from death and comes back in resurrection life, doesn't he? And he goes to Nineveh and preaches the message. And Jonah stands, you can see two different responses, or three. Jonah, at one point, is in active resistance to God's get up and go, and he runs. That's actively disobeying. That's sin. Jonah, at the end of the book, is in passive resistance to the gospel. He's gone out of town, and he's sitting under his little shade tent, right, in East Nineveh, and his new real estate development he's got going there, as we talked about last week, right? Purcelled out some nice lots on the hill. And he's sitting there in his little tent Frowning in passive disobedience. And so, when you, Christian, hear the call to get up and go, you can actively resist and say, I will not, and run. Or you can just sit and binge watch your latest Netflix show while the world around you goes to hell. That's sin too. It's passive disobedience. When Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, it means something. If you're going to say, I am a Christian, it had better mean something. Worship, witness. It's a text about signs and sign language. The sign of Jonah points to Christ. The life of a disciple, the sign of a disciple points to Christ. Look at the end of the text where Jesus says who his siblings are. Who is my mother and my brothers and my sister they are the ones who do the will of my father in heaven that's not a neutral answer you can't be neutral about jesus right what does first john say the will of god is to believe in jesus christ as god's son and to love one another if anyone says i know jesus you have to walk just as jesus walked remember we studied our way through this whole book last year You can't remain neutral. You either obey Jesus and get up and go, or you are in active resistance or passive resistance, and both are disobedient. About a year ago, you might remember, I preached another slightly pulpit-pounding sermon that ended this way. Pastor Luke and I went and got that baptistry out of the corner where it was covered in dust because it hadn't been used in 10 years or more, and we planted it right here. Because this is a church that has two sacraments, by golly, and we're going to administer both of them. And we left it right here with a challenge, now you guys need to do some stuff so this thing gets filled with water and poured on people. And now we've used it. Two of my favorite services we've ever had here, today it was one of them. Scripture's giving us another challenge We've been practicing pedo baptism, and well, we should. It's time to practice credo baptism, my friends. It's time for somebody to get that water on them because they've become a believer in Jesus Christ. They've converted from darkness to life. They've heard, they've seen and heard the gospel of grace because we are here and we've lived it and we've spoken it. And like the Ninevites, they've been transformed into a completely different person. And now we're going to do credo-baptism as a new believer comes to Christ and gets the water. It's time to use that baptistry on a new convert or two or ten. That's your challenge this morning. That's your commission from this text. I'm going to give you a commission that some of you are already doing and well on your way. Some of you need to start doing that today would be fine. We want going to live as signs that point to Jesus. Not active resistance, not passive complacency. So here's your commission. It's three Ps. A person, a passage, and a proclamation. You can get out your pen and write them down. Write down the name of one person. This is probably the same person you wrote down two weeks ago. One person, one passage from Scripture that you're going to pray for them over and over and over and over and over. Pray a passage. And then use that passage to the third p proclaim to them the gospel a person a passage and a proclamation some of you are already doing this all the time some of us need to get started on it it's time to keep using the baptistry both for paedo and credo in other words covenant children's and new believers baptism a person a passage and a proclamation and then that's our job and we'll just let the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to, because you're not going to save anybody, right? You're not going to save anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You give him the material by speaking the word of God and living a godly life in front of unbelievers, and you let him do the regenerating, saving work. That's his job. That's his job. Now let's ask him to do it. Would you pray with me? The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, so all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is us, Father. This passage describes us. Would that we would take more steps to the right, that it would describe us even better. We ask that you would give us this privilege, Make us your ambassadors. Make your appeal through us. Use us to to live and speak the gospel of Christ so that others around us would be reconciled to you. Because for our sake, you made him who knew no sin. You made him sin for us. You have saved us. So that we might be your righteousness. So that we might be your ambassadors. Give us a person. Give us a passage. And then give us a chance to proclaim. Help us in our weakness. Fill us with your Spirit to give us the will and the strength to do so. Amen.